Illinois lawmakers have concluded their one-day special session. A second redistricting map, progress on a massive energy overhaul bill, and a handful of veto votes, some of which didn't turn out as expected. We'll try to unravel all that on this edition of Capital Cast. Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock and I'm here again with our State House Bureau Chief, Jerry Nowicki. Jerry, let's get right into the redistricting thing because ostensibly that was the whole reason for lawmakers to come back. Uh, just to kind of recap what's been happening here, they passed a bill back in the spring in an attempt to meet the state constitution's June 30th deadline, even though they didn't have complete census data at the time. Lawsuits were filed. Census numbers finally came out in August, and they had to make what Democrats were calling adjustments, but what Republicans were calling a complete overhaul, and one that they think should be found illegal. The whole thing is the most nakedly political process that any legislature goes through, and it comes around with each new census every 10 years. Let's listen to House Redistricting Chairwoman Lisa Hernandez of Cicero explain. While the other side of the aisle have been making making excuse after excuse to try and delay the body's constitutional obligation to draw maps, The House and Senate Democrats worked tirelessly to bring stakeholders and communities from across the state together for their input. 50 hearings in the spring, nine hearings this August, multiple ways to testify and submit recommendations, a public mapping portal to submit maps. Did everyone get everything they wanted? No but everyone was heard. Republicans naturally took a different view of it. Here's Republican Representative Ryan Spain of Peoria. We've had members say that what a great process this has been because we've had so many different hearings. These are hearings that have included locked doors and no one showing up at all other than our dedicated Republican spokesperson and other members of the Republican side of the aisle. Now, Republicans kept trying to pin the Democrats down on what metrics they used to make sure that communities of interest were being treated fairly, especially communities of color. But because of the ongoing litigation, Hernandez and other Democrats would only give vague, noncommittal, sometimes even obfuscating responses. But then you had Democrat Curtis Tarver of Chicago. You hear them talking a lot about minority and diverse populations, which is kind of remarkable to me, and it should be remarkable to you too, because they don't care about diversity. Look at their voting records. Were there any voter, uh, Republicans voting to ensure that people of color have access to quality health care? Any Republican votes to ensure that Illinois, uh, Illinoisans had equal access to the ballot? Were there any Republican votes on a criminal justice bill? And sorry, I have to go here. I don't mean the piss-poor trailer bill that gutted what we fought for. That's when Republicans showed up. But on the actual bill where we fought for criminal justice reform, were there Republican votes? The answer is no. 
So, Jerry, that was kind of reminiscent of the debate back in June. You have Democrats essentially saying at the end of the debate, yes, we're drawing districts that disadvantage you because we don't like you, we don't like your policies, and we don't want you gaining more power. So now that we have the new maps, let's talk about the next steps. As we sit here and speak, Governor Pritzker hasn't signed them yet. I guess we all expect him to eventually. Uh, but we also have at least two federal court challenges going on. So what are the possibilities here? You know, you've been covering that court. I think you'd know those better than I, but um, to to having read your articles, it certainly appears that the federal court's not going to send it to the bipartisan commission like the uh, Republicans had hoped. Um but that, that's not to say that, that can't happen. I think that it'd have to involve the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, that is. Um, but, you know, there's maybe you could go a little bit more in depth about what the next steps might be in the federal court. Well, yeah, it, it looks like the federal, uh, the trial on the two federal uh, cases is being postponed because they have to amend their complaints and take into account what the legislature has done here. Um, I think MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, which is representing a number of Latino plaintiffs, say that these new maps actually give the Latino population less representation, even though they gain significant amounts in population. Uh, so it could be new maps could be challenged on those grounds. I guess I'm wondering in the past, I mean, isn't it true that every set of maps the lawmakers have passed since the 1970 constitution, don't they always wind up in court? Yeah, there's always legal challenges to them. Um, but when it, the Democrats control all three branches, I shouldn't say all three branches of government, I should say both chambers and the governor's office, it's it's going to be very hard for Republicans to uh, get a seat at that table even. Well, moving on, uh, as long as they were here, they also took up the energy bill, which has just been kind of hanging over the General Assembly like a cloud for about the last, what, two and a half years. Um, it seems that the energy bill actually got through the Senate, uh, but by that time, the House had already gone home. But Illinois is coming up against some deadlines on this. Can you explain what the deadlines are? Yeah. Um, Exelon, which owns the six nuclear plants in the state, um, it's not really threatened, but it's stated its intent to close two of them. And I think especially for the Byron plant, um, they gave a deadline of, I believe, September 12th, that after that date, they really can't decide to refuel that plant. Um, and they say they need action by then. And, and part of what's in this package is about $700 million over, I believe, five years in subsidies for the nuclear plants because they say they're, uh, they are an unprofitable uh, operation at this point, or they need that uh, subsidy to maintain profitability. So that's one of the things. And then the investment in renewables, like the solar and wind that we see popping up places, uh, they, the advocates and the people who build that uh, uh, infrastructure are saying, you know, the money's 
run out um, and there was a deadline that passed late August and Senator Hastings, the sponsor of the energy bill, said it's a million dollars a day from that renewable fund being refunded to ratepayers uh, until there's action on the uh, deadline uh, pertaining to the renewable portfolio standard. Okay, and just to be clear, I think most ratepayers in Illinois uh, are paying a little fee on their monthly bill uh, that goes into this fund, uh, which helps finance uh, solar projects, wind projects, things like that. Uh, but apparently that, uh, that law has sunsetted, and whatever's in the fund has to go back to ratepayers. Is that yeah, that's my understanding of it, and I believe what the current bill would do is actually increase that fee, which is uh, from 2% to 4%. You know, the, the uh, I'm not exactly sure the, the amount that would be on an average bill, but uh, it, it, that's why the uh, infrastructure groups, the energy people, the renewable energy people are so for it because they say they need that money to be able to sustain the momentum. Right now, about 7 or 8% of Illinois' energy mix is renewables. Okay, so it got through the Senate, uh, but as we said, by that time the House had already gone home. Uh, and it seems like it, it was looking like this bill probably didn't have the votes in the House to get through. It's going to still need some more changes. Uh, what are we hearing on the House side? Yeah, it, it was never going to pass the House. That's the, the Senate passed it, and I think one of the senators uh, during the vote said, you know, I'm voting for this only because we'll get it to further discussion. So it's been the Senate negotiating it for a long time. Now it's going to the House, as you said. Uh, I spoke to one of the lead negotiators in the Energy Working Group, and he said definitely before veto session, which is, of course, scheduled in uh, mid or mid to late October or something, but uh, definitely before that. But, well, you know, if it's after this next couple of weeks, we're not sure what's going to happen with that Byron plant. Um, so I don't know of the exact date for the House at all. Okay. Well, we'll wait to hear more from the House about if and when they're going to come back. Uh, meanwhile, as long as they were here... Uh, the governor had issued one or two vetoes along with what they call amendatory vetoes, where he sends a bill back requesting a specific change. One of those was the much-talked-about ethics bill, uh, which passed during the regular session with overwhelming majorities, even though Republicans said they really didn't like it, uh, didn't go far enough. Uh, some thought that it actually weakened the office of the legislative inspector general. Uh, the governor sent it back asking for a minor change in a provision dealing with the executive inspector general. The Senate accepted those changes, and it didn't get through the House. Uh, it actually failed in the House. Seems like a lot of Democrats had already gone home. It was very late at night at that point. It only got 59 votes when it needed 60. Uh, there's some talk that the Democrats weren't here by design, uh, because shortly after they passed that first bill back in the spring, Legislative Inspector General Carol Pope submitted her resignation, saying, among other things, that it was clear to her that uh, significant ethics reform just was not a priority for the General Assembly. Uh, so the bill didn't get through the ha the amendatory veto. It kind of killed the bill. Uh, what can happen from here? Can they take this up again? 
they can take it up again, but uh, when they gaveled in for regular session to consider some of this stuff, they started a 15-day clock. Uh, so if it's if it's going to pass, uh, it needs a three-fifths majority, which is 71 votes, um, and it would have to pass within the next 15 days from Tuesday. So. Um, you know, I don't I can't speak to whether it was intentional that some of these Democrats walked out or if they just wanted to get home to their families, to their districts or whatever. Uh, but it, it it's important to note that it when it came up for a vote, it was after 10 p.m. after a long day of stuff. And and, you know, it is their, certainly their job to be here to vote on that stuff. So it could have been an intentional exit for some of them, or they could have just assumed that, you know, because when it initially passed, it had 113 votes for, including uh, most Republicans, and then five votes against. So maybe they assumed the Republicans wouldn't all pull off the bill, but uh, I think it was Carol Pope's resignation that really changed the conversation about the bill. Um, Republicans at the time said it was watered down and didn't go far enough to do what they want to do, uh, but the fact that it actually quite possibly weakened the legislative inspector general, that, that really changed the conversation. Okay, and then we heard on Thursday that a handful of Republican House members are using the defeat of that bill, uh, kind of pleading with the Democrats to come back to the table and negotiate a new one. Uh, are we hearing anything about whether or not that's going to happen? I've been trying to make a few calls to see what the future of the ethics bill is today, but haven't gotten much response. I don't know if it's, again, because uh, Democrats are sort of being mum about why it failed or simply because it's before a long holiday weekend and everyone's trying to relax a little bit. Okay, and then meanwhile, the governor out-and-out out vetoed a bill uh, that also had overwhelming majorities in both chambers. Uh, this was a bill that would take non-emergency ambulance service out of the managed care, the sort of privatized form of Medicaid, and put it back into a fee-for-service model. I guess the ambulance service providers were saying that uh, the private insurance companies that operate the managed care side of Medicaid uh, were just routinely or arbitrarily denying claims that they weren't getting paid. They wanted to go back to the fee-for-service. Fee Lawmakers seemed to go along with that. The governor out-and-out out vetoed it, and uh, lawmakers overrode his veto. We haven't seen something like that happen, especially on a veto that the governor was really serious about. Uh, does this indicate that the governor's influence over the legislature is kind of eroding? Well, when the issue was brought to my attention, it was kind of strange because it, it had passed unanimously. So, you know, a veto of a unanimously passed bill, I don't know what that's going to do other than get yourself overridden. So I don't know if it's an influence thing, but the governor's clearly just saw something different in this bill than the General Assembly. So the ambulance are saying, you know, we're, this is just us trying to get paid for the services we've we've rendered. And uh, Healthcare and Family Services, which over, will oversee this program now, they said, you know, it'll there'll be a cost to us administering this. And uh, one of the things the governor noted, which I found interesting, is right now you can call your managed care provider and say, hey, I need 
uh, ambulance ride to my dialysis treatment, whatever, and then they'll call whoever to get them set up and brought to your home. But that's not going to be the case anymore. So the governor said, you know, there might be some major barriers to access for the people who, you know, other than who might not follow the General Assembly, might not know this is coming, might not know how to get that ambulance ride now. So that's the type of stuff this is. It's transport and stuff like that for medical treatments for people who can't really drive themselves and stuff like that. Right. So So if you're in a car accident or you have a serious uh, accident or heart attack at home, ambulances will still come and they'll still get reimbursed for that. It was the non-emergency uh, care, as you were just saying, uh, elderly, disabled people who need transport to a doctor's appointment or to an outpatient surgery clinic or something like that. Right. And in April, they switched over the emergency ambulance services to the fee for service under HFS. So the ambulance are saying, you know, 75% of our uh, services are already there. Let's put the last 25% in the non-emergency services along with uh, emergency. So let, just to sum up, they got through this one-day special session. Uh, does it look like they're going to have to come back for another before veto session? Yeah, it's certainly that's that seems to be the intent. But the question is, will it be before that uh, major uh, nuclear deadline? Okay, well, we'll be watching for that. In the meantime, that will do it for this edition of Capital Cast. Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois, a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock with Jerry Nowicki saying have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend, and we'll talk to you next time on Capital Cast.